This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Generation Anthropocene is supported by Stanford School of Earth, Energy, and Environmental Sciences. Find out more at earth.stanford.edu. We're also supported by Worldview Stanford. You can find out more about Worldview at worldview.stanford.edu. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 Million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural. 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene, where we tell stories of people, the planet, and people on the planet. I'm Miles Traer. Today, we're bringing you an interview that we first aired back in 2012, four years ago when our show was just getting started. This is our conversation with Paul Ehrlich. Ehrlich first gained notoriety back in the 60s with the publication of his best-selling book, The Population Bomb. In the decades since, he's remained a provocative figurehead in the environmental movement. Ehrlich was interviewed by our former student, Jenny Rempel. My name is Jenny Rempel, and I'm here with Paul Ehrlich. And he first popped up on my radar in about eighth grade, I'd say, as the sort of budding feminist my mom was uh, encouraging me to be. I chose to write my eighth grade term paper on Rachel Carson. But then this this Paul Ehrlich figure just kept popping up. And there he was again in high school in my history textbooks and my environmental studies textbooks. And so when I arrived at Stanford, I knew this is someone I'd have to I'd have to meet. This is a real treat. So thanks, Paul. Well, it's great to be here. You really make me feel old. <laughs> no, 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 that's not the intention. Um, I wanted to sort of start by jumping in on something um, that you're probably most or best known for: the population bomb. Going back to that 1968 uh, real classic that. Um, warned of mass starvation due to overpopulation, advocated for better limits on um, population growth. But obviously, a lot has changed. You received criticism and praise over the years for that. So I wanted to just just start out and ask the question, where were you wrong and and where were you right and what's changed in those those 40-some years? Well, obviously, no scientist would write the same book 40-some years later than originally. I would say the biggest mistake in the book uh, overall was it was too optimistic. Uh, But the biggest mistake in terms of prediction was that um, 
I, mostly the agricultural economists I was talking to, underrated how fast the Green Revolution would be adopted. And therefore, um, the levels of actual famine that occurred soon after the book uh, didn't occur. They became more spread out. In other words, they were not localized famines. We've lost something on the order of uh, uh, 400 to uh, 500 million people to starvation since the book was written. One of the funny things is that a standard criticism is Ehrlich said the battle to feed all of humanity is over. And yet here we are today uh, with more people starving than there were people starving in when the book was written in 1968. But basically the problem is the book was too optimistic. We, we for example, knew about climate change and wrote about the possibilities of cooling or warming. We knew if you put crap in the atmosphere, you were going to change the climate. But the work by Ralph Cicerone and others that showed that we'd only really recognized about half of the greenhouse forcing at that time, that the other greenhouse gases beyond CO2 hadn't been identified, meant that our view that the problems with climate would probably come at the end of this century transferred them back to the beginning of this century, which we're facing right now. As a matter of fact, today, uh, there was a release of the news that the spring in 2012 uh, was the warmest ever in the United States. Uh, also, we didn't really realize how fast biodiversity was disappearing and the ecosystem services along with them. Norman Myers and actually Ann and I did the work on that some years after the population uh, the population bomb was written. We didn't know about the destruction of the ozone layer. That was all brand new. And I think the, the worst thing is that we didn't, we're not able to predict that starting with Ronald Reagan, almost all the advances that have been made in environmental protection uh, in the United States and the world have been reversed and that we would by 2012 be moving as rapidly as possible away from a sustainable society and away from the chances of avoiding a total collapse. Is that cheery enough for you? <laughs> I, I, that's, that's interesting. You say that you were too optimistic. Oh, much too optimistic. I I pause a little bit with that that uh, critique that since Ronald Reagan we've only been moving backwards as environmental movement. Do you? Because I'd like oh, to. Oh, not think as in, an environmental okay. movement, as a society. For example, every year there's more greenhouse gases in the atmosphere than there were the year before. Every year there are fewer populations and species of the organisms that run our life support systems. Every year we have to drill deeper for oil, go further uh, for fresh water, uh, face much more serious prospects of pandemics. So it's not the environmental movement. Well, the environmental movement in some ways just has failed. I mean, we, we have been fundamentally, and I'm included in that, a total failure. Do you think some of that failure comes back to this this precise rhetoric where we're sort of bombarding people with these negative images of failure or of of escalating trends where population is rising, biodiversity loss is on the rise, CO2 uh, emissions on the rise, exactly what you've just been saying. Do you think part of it comes down, part of this failure of environmentaliz environmentalism comes down to sort of the rhetoric the movement uses? Well, the issue of is it really right to just keep scaring people and not producing solutions that actually what people want to hear are solutions? We have absolute proof that's bullshit because Anne and I have written several books on solutions. They never sell. Nobody's interested. If you write about what's actually happening, if you tell people the truth of what's going on, then they buy the books. They don't necessarily do anything. I mean, we have proven 
with climate change that simply telling people the science does not change human behavior significantly. And that's what our group is working on most now in the Millennium Alliance for Humanity and the Biosphere, trying to bring the social sciences, the humanities, and civil society and people in general uh, into an effort to understand why we are behaving so stupidly. It is my conviction, and it's shared with all the scientists I work with, that incremental change, a little bit here, a little bit there, is not going to solve the fundamental problem. We have to look very hard at the huge issues, like how do we get some kind of global governance? Because we obviously, many of the problems like climate disruption, like the uh, deterioration of the epidemiological environment, that is our increasing vulnerability to huge plagues, uh, that wars over resources, we're having a big one now over fossil fuels in Central Asia, and the Chinese and the American military are gearing up to fight each other there. And so on all these things, require global governance, which we clearly don't have. Uh, we uh, just right down the line, there's a whole series of huge issues which come back to what are people for? That is, is the real goal for humanity to have as many individuals as you can using as much junk per person as you can until the whole mess collapses? Or should we, for example, re-examine our having rebuilt the United States over the last century around the automobile, should we maybe start a program of rebuilding it around people instead? Should we maybe allocate the vast majority of automobiles to the one thing they're really superb for? And that's, of course, places for teenagers to mate. Uh, the nice thing there is you don't need gasoline or engines. You know, they can be, all you need is tinted windows, maybe. <laughs> And in a back alley somewhere. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, a new form of population control will just take right. all the cars off the streets. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, so part of this, this concern with behavior or with humans' inability to sort of translate this knowledge into action comes down to some, some almost, I don't want to call them fundamental truths, but some unfortunate uh, trends or tendencies of sort of humans' evolutionary trajectory. And I think you've thought a bit about this in terms of um, our, our ability to think on longer-term scales or um, the fact that we're primarily visual thinkers. Or I don't know if you have any thoughts on, on why, why is humanity failing us in this way? Where, where are we well, evolutionarily well, limited? <laughs> the, the, the roots of our success and our failure are in our brains, obviously. Yeah. And uh, we have various ideas about why human beings so suddenly developed uh, very large brains. It only took, but in evolutionary time, it only took us a couple million years to get really big brains. And actually, the huge changes, that is the so-called cultural revolution and the agricultural revolution, are, in evolutionary terms, very recent. None of these problems could have developed without the overpopulation that led to agriculture. And that's only five to 10,000 years ago. So that means it's less than a 20th of the time that modern human beings walked on the planet. And it's much smaller portion. After all, we've been around, our clear ancestors have been around for something like five, six million years, depending on where you, where you count the split from the, uh, from the chimpanzees. But for most of that period, A, 
Uh, there was no point in planning for the long-distance future. If Australopithecus was changing the climate, uh, it wasn't, uh, and it couldn't do anything about it if it understood it. So there was no point in in having long-term planning. After all, what what our ancestors were really good at was ducking a rock thrown at their head, uh, running away from a uh, leopard, uh, and so on. But long-term change until very recently was not was not an issue. Uh, for Homo sapiens, either genetically or culturally. And that was perfectly reasonable for the basically millions of years we existed, we and our predecessors existed as hunters, gatherers, as procurers of food. The shift to being producers of food was a dramatic shift. And again, just five to 10,000 years ago, depending on the place. And suddenly, uh, one family could grow enough food to support itself and feed more. And that led to specialization for various for various reasons, so that you could have soldiers and carpenters and priests and what have you, and then you get hierarchies and you get dominance and you get war and all the other neat things that characterize us. But genetically, of course, and largely culturally, we're still back in the old days where our cultural evolution has gone most rapidly is in our technological abilities. Uh, for example, suppose you could resurrect Darwin and put him in a modern biology lab. He would be totally puzzled by the amino acid analyzers and so on. It would take him quite a while to get caught up on what has been learned in the couple hundred years, like 150 years, since he was really active. If you brought Plato back today, a couple thousand years later, he could sit in on any philosophy class, and if he understood the language, he could get into the discussion. I mean, many philosophers say that all of philosophy today is just footnotes to Plato. Now, it isn't that our, our evolution on the cultural side, on the how we treat each other side, has not progressed in those couple thousand years, but it's been a trivial speed compared to uh, how fast our technological abilities. So you basically have kind of a Stone Age animal equipped with Space Age tools uh, and uh, not well educated. Our education system does a miserable job of trying to bridge the gap that has been created between those two kinds of cultural evolution. I mentioned earlier that back in high school and certainly in, in college courses, you're such a, a figure within the environmental movement that that you're almost set up as this this uh, field of thought that uh, humanity operates within these strict environmental limits. And that field of thought is, you know, for better or for worse, set up as diametrically opposed to sort of the Julian Simons of the world or the Prometheans who really have this faith in technological solutions and human ingenuity. And I, I, well, they also that? are mathematically challenged. <laughs> okay. I mean, for example, Julian Simon said that we have enough information in our brains and our libraries to keep the human population growing for another 7 billion years. Now, it was an That's interesting calculation. Well, not only is it a long time, uh, at any recorded rate of growth of the human population, let's suppose it was even growing at, instead of the present growth rate around a percent or so a year, uh, it was growing at a millionth of a percent a year. At that rate, you would have long before 7 billion years go by more people than elementary particles in the universe. In other words, there is no countering genuine idiots. Uh, and uh, the fact that people say, oh, we can easily support 16 billion people or we can easily do this or easily do that. I've been listening to that now for those 40 some years. Uh, 
When we wrote the population bomb, we were told repeatedly that modern technology would allow us to feed, house, clothe, and take care of, educate as many as five billion people, no problem. And when we said, why don't we try supporting the three and a half billion we have now that way before we talk about where we can, no, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. Well, of course, now we have seven billion people with as many people as were alive when I was born living in misery, and people are still talking about how easy it will be to support 15 billion or 20 billion, whatever number they come up with. Well, these are people who know nothing about it. In other words, you've got to separate the people who are just gibbering idiots from those who have seriously looked at the issue and spent real time working on it. Yeah, yeah. No, and I, I fully feel that. Maybe I set this or I framed this a little bit poorly. I guess I'm wondering more about whether you have any faith in in technological solutions or uh, or, or how you see the, the interplay between cultural evolution and sort of technological advancements um, as as parts of a whole towards our um, movement towards ad addressing these environmental issues? Are they, are they factors wait, that are wait, wait, Let's put it this or? way. I, I don't have faith in anything, okay. period. <laughs> but uh, this clearly we need to use technologies very cleverly if we're going to get out of our present fix. We're not at the point where we can go back uh, to very simple technologies to hunting and gathering and using stone axes and, and uh, uh, you know, using uh, bows to make fire and that sort of thing. That's not going to happen. So we have to use technology. One of the things we have to do is use it extremely carefully, and we don't. Some of your colleagues actually just uh, published a book titled Love Your Monsters, Post-Environmentalism and the Anthropocene. Are you are you familiar with no, this at I'm all? No, I'm not. Okay. I know I'm familiar with the Anthropocene, <laughs> yes. of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a collection of essays by Ted Nordhaus and Michael Schellenberger. Uh, Schellenberger. Yeah, yeah, and they argue, uh, sort of in the in the book's introduction, that um, they they argue, quote, to save what remains of the Earth's ecological heritage, we must once and for all embrace human power, technology, and the larger process of modernization. End quote. Do you? Uh, Will you ever embrace uh, technology and this this process of modernization? Nobody should embrace technology and nobody should discard technology. Technology is one of the things that human beings and some other animals have developed. It can be used very well. It can be used very badly. Anybody who thinks that technology, that the technological rabbits that we can pull out of a hat will somehow solve the vast majority of human problems we've been discussing, I think is dead wrong. Our, our history is that when you pull a technological rabbit out of a hat, you don't notice its very nasty droppings that soon are all over your shoes. You know, remember, chlorofluorocarbons were the wonder, better things for, chemist, uh, for better living through chemistry. They uh, replaced the nasty working fluids in refrigerators, things like ammonia, so that if your refrigerator broke at night, you'd end up dead because the ammonia would come out and poison you. Chlorofluorocarbons didn't. All they did was threaten to kill every human being on the face of the earth. And, you know, if we hadn't discovered that, so you just don't embrace technology, you use technology. And then I guess another another equity concern, which is which gets at humans sort of inability to think in the long term has to do with inter versus intra generational equity, which is a big one when you're thinking about these long term problems like climate change, like biodiversity loss um, and, and similarly like overpopulation. I was wondering how you sort of how you view these these trade offs or are they even because sometimes they are well, explicitly trade offs between sure. helping <coughs> Wait, people sure. who are suffering today and helping 
future generations. No, I mean, it has to be considered. I have to say, uh, I've worked probably more with economists now than with, uh, with ecologists often. And uh, they have looked at these issues of intergenerational equity. I have my own theory for what presents a real problem there, but it's utterly unsupported by any real evidence. And that is, uh, as you get further out there, you have a more and more difficulty relating to people further in the future. Uh, just like you have more trouble relating to people in the past. You certainly were probably knew your grandparents reasonably well. Did you not? No. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I did. Yeah. How about your great grandparents? Yeah, similarly, not so. Yeah, well. I mean, they fade back, and your great great grandparents you probably can't even name, right? And then you go the other direction. So, in part, it's part of our built-in uh, areas of concern. We concern easily with a certain group, and then I mean, one of the problems we've had always is the in-group, out-group. How easy it is to define people as being outside of humanity uh, because we are so accustomed to be evolutionarily to being in uniform groups. So that's one of the things we got to break down. I think if you break down, if you think about some of Peter Singer's ideas about how you spread sympathy and empathy and so on, uh, if we break them down, I think you'll get the breakdown, not just in geographic distance, which is a big thing, but also in temporal distance. We'll learn better to try and consider future generations, but that's always going to be incredibly tough because of what assumptions you then have to make about what's their utilities, what do they want, <laughs> and also what capabilities will be left to them. Will they be so rich and so technologically advanced that we can just blow everything today and they'll solve it all? I think that's nonsense, but that's one view you could take. Or will we have left them so little that they'll be descending into a sort of pre-human state? Uh, nobody knows. Yeah. So but we ought to think about it. Exactly. And I think a lot of the problem comes down to this issue of time horizons. And it's not just um, with regards to equity or sort of conceptualizing what future uh, human societies will look like, but it's also um, humans in our short term thinking or our tendency towards short term thinking really struggle with the messages or the realities of, of biodiversity loss, of rising CO2 levels, because you want to convey this sense that there is some urgency, some need to act, but it's it's also hard to deal with this impending crisis or this. Particularly when, when you can't see exactly. it. Exactly. If, if the lion jumps out of the bush at you, you don't have to do a lot of thinking about whether you got an impending crisis, what to do, and so on. We, we evolved to deal with that essentially automatically. You can't see the rise of CO2. If, if CO2 was bright red and the atmosphere was getting perceptibly redder every day, then you might be able to deal with it more readily. We have a great deal of difficulty dealing with crises like changing weather or growing population. After all, the population isn't popping up around you all the time. It isn't until you get out on the freeway uh, that you begin to get a feel <laughs> that we got a problem. I mean, one of the things that impressed me and which we've gotten a lot of flack on uh, was describing the, I just actually got a manuscript from another guy, the same experience, going to Delhi at the time of the Bihar famine and seeing basically everybody living in the streets, cooking in the streets, relieving themselves in the streets and so on. It was, it changed. There's a difference to me in how you know things intellectually and how you know them emotionally. I know a lot of kids in the world are hungry, but when I 
work in Costa Rica and I find that the family that we're trying to work in their backyard and giving the kids a little money to guard uh, are uh, butterfly nets or traps or whatever, and you realize that the kids are malnourished, that gets you in a different way than looking at the statistics that X million kids die of starvation every year. And it was the same thing. So you, you do speak about these times when you're when you're proven wrong, but going back to the population bomb, what are we've learned so much since then, but what are some of the big uh, messages that ring true and that you really would emphasize today, forty years later, to this this current generation? Well, the the basic message that the size of the population can always outstrip the resources available to it <clears throat> was basically Malthus's message. Malthus, social views were not mine and so on, but Malthus was, after all, a couple hundred years ago and one of the great economists of all time, and he was correct there. And the basic message of the population bomb, that the size of the human population was a very important factor uh, in, in bringing us towards a very unhappy end, is not only clearly true, it's been repeated by the scientific community so many times one gets sick of it. I mean, in 1993, there was both the statement of 58 Academies of Science that said it, there was the World Scientist Warning to Humanity, which was signed by more than half of the Nobel laureates in science that said it, the British Royal Society this year just got out a report saying it. Uh, it's, it's not even a matter of debate in the scientific community. Not at all. I mean, sometimes scientists write idiotic things about it. Uh, but nonetheless, it's just uh, that, that part of the message is just arithmetic. Unless you can believe that you can have a, a, an economist, Kenneth Boulding said in 1966, anyone who thinks you can have perpetual growth on a finite planet is either an imbecile or an economist. Uh, and that, it just shows you no, nobody doubts that. The idea that somehow that would be controversial is still absolutely amazing. And you still have people uh, on left and right who seem to think that you can grow forever. Thank you for coming in. This was wonderful. My pleasure. I've had a great time. Thank you. Generation Anthropocene is produced by Leslie Chang, Mike Osborne, and me, Miles Trayer. Isha Salian is our production intern. We want to thank Tom Hayden and Pam Matson. Our theme music is by Maserati, and our website is genanthro.com. You can also find us on Twitter, at Gen Anthropocene. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.